Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. six weeks in the fall of 1774, representatives from every colony but Georgia gathered in Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress, which hammered out a common program of resistance. The Congress launched a Continental Association which decreed a total embargo on trade with Britain. No imports, no exports. In Philadelphia, The Second Continental Congress laid plans to spread the fight. The delegate issued a formal declaration of war against Britain and authorized creation of a Continental Army to be commanded by Virginia planter George Washington. As the war wore on, however, popular anger at Britain reached new heights and radical agitators channeled that anger into sentiment for independence. Not all common people backed the cause. Contemporaries estimated that about one-third of free colonists favored independence, another third opposed it, and the rest stayed neutral. For slaves, about 20% of the colonial population in 1775, the war fueled hopes for their own independence, and that repeatedly placed them at odds with white revolutionaries. Black men, both slave and free, served in the New England militia units that mobilized against the British in the spring of 1775 and in the Continental Army's earliest regiments. The troops were volunteers and blacks would sign up with the consent of their owners with the understanding that military service would render them free. That crack in the edifice of slavery agitated the Continental Congress, whose unity in behalf of the war rested on an agreement that it would not liberate slaves. In February 1776, following months of debate among congressmen and military commanders, George Washington ordered that free black men who had already served could re-enlist in the Continental Army, but that no other black or Indian soldiers would be accepted. In November of 1775, the colony's royal governor, Lord John Dunmore, issued a proclamation promising freedom to all slaves who belonged to American rebels and bore arms for Britain. In the few weeks that elapsed before the Continental troops drove Dunmore from the mainland, some 700 slaves made their way to his camp near Norfolk. By the end of the war, tens of thousands of escaped slaves, men and women alike, would serve Britain's army as soldiers or workers behind the lines. Slaves fled their masters in unprecedented numbers 
30,000 in Virginia alone, according to Thomas Jefferson's estimates. Petitions for freedom poured into state courts and legislatures, often echoing the Declaration of Independence. Every state soon instituted a military draft which ushered in more drastic changes in the army's makeup. While the draft law typically conscripted white men only, that did not determine who actually served. A man who was summoned could send his slave, indentured servant, his apprentice, or any paid substitute to take his place. The fighting ended suddenly in October 1781 when the British Army in Virginia was trapped between America and French forces. That winter, Parliament voted to abandon the war, and in 1782, the British troops withdrew from all states, accompanied by some 30,000 former slaves who had assisted them in the war. In the Treaty of Paris, signed in 1783, Britain formally recognized American independence and transferred the United States all territory east of the Mississippi River, south of the Great Lake and north of Florida. Slavery, Indian land rights, and other issues Congress had sidestepped in the Declaration of Independence would now come sharply to the fore. By 1790, the free black population reached almost 60,000, up from just a few thousand at the start of the Revolution. But slaves numbered about 698,000 living mostly in the South, a little over 100,000 in Maryland and in each of the Carolinas. The largest slaveholder by far was Thomas Jefferson's Virginia, where the census of 1790 counted 292,627 slaves. The most explosive issue in the post-war era was a debt crisis that wreaked havoc on family farms. When American ports reopened to British trade, wartime shortages and inflation gave way to peacetime glut and depression. Small farmers were the hardest hit, for agricultural prices were the first to fall. In the 1790s, they split into rival parties, the Federalist-backed merchants and financiers and the Democratic Republicans favored by planters, farmers, and artisans. By the mid-1820s, the Federalists had collapsed into the Democratic Republicans, whose rival sectors would regroup as the Democratic Party and the Whigs. In 1792, Congress enacted a militia law that authorized the states to draft men into service. In 1794, President Washington sent some 13,000 militia men into Pennsylvania's backcountry to crush popular resistance to a federal tax on whiskey, which farmers distilled from their excess corn. In 1798, Congress tried to silence anti-federalists with a sedition act that made it a crime punishable by fine and imprisonment to publish statements that subjected the government to contempt or disrepute. The earliest American Union appeared in the 1790s. They were established by white craft journeymen starting with Philadelphia shoemakers in 1792. In the early 1800s, the movement spread to carpenters, masons, and tailors in New York, 
shoemakers in Baltimore and Pittsburgh, and printers in seven cities from Boston to New Orleans. When they made progress in goals such as controlling hours of labor and wages, unions were hauled into court and convicted on charges of conspiracy. Long after the Federalist Party was a dead letter, the jurists it had appointed and the legal doctrines it had embraced undercut union organizing. In the mid-1790s, white craftsmen, seamen, farmers, joined with some well-to-do dissidents in a large network of political clubs that soon merged into the Democratic-Republican Party headed by Thomas Jefferson. The clubs championed causes the aristocratic Federalists hated, extensions of voting rights, and into closed-door lawmaking, the establishment of public schools. Jefferson's election ushered in 24 years of Democratic-Republican administration headed by Virginia planters and widely supported by white workmen. By 1825, all but three states, Virginia, Rhode Island, and Louisiana, granted voting rights to white male citizens, and all but two, South Carolina and Delaware, chose presidential electors by polling voters instead of state legislatures. The indenture of European immigrants died out as state lawmakers eliminated imprisonment for debt and thus liberated redemptioners from debt bondage. Jeffersonian democracy did not expand women's rights. The earliest U.S. factories, textile mills in northern states, recruited a white workforce largely composed of women and girls. Some mills hired whole families, and in such cases, male heads of households received the wages of all their kin. By the 1820s, however, it was more common for textile manufacturers to staff their mills with young unmarried women. Mill jobs regimented their lives. They worked at least 12 hours a day, six days a week, and resided in company-owned boarding houses that imposed strict rules regarding curfews, bedtimes, church attendance, and so forth. But their wages went into their own pockets, and that gave most mill women a greater sense of independence than they had ever had before. Mill women's independent spirit sparked labor protest as well. In December 1828, a strike by women in the Cochiquee Mill in Dover, New Hampshire, forced the company to rescind new rules that fined workers for lateness and forbade them to talk on the job. As agreed, the Constitutional Convention, Congress outlawed the importation of slaves as of January 1, 1808. By then, however, slaves numbered about one million and new births together with illegal importations would double that figure by 1830. The free black population grew at a slower pace, from about 180,000 in 1808 to 320,000 in 1830. Starting with Virginia, 1793, states across the South prohibited or severely limited the entry of free black people, ordered those already resident to document their freedom before local authorities and treated all who did not comply as fugitive slaves. 
by 1810, every southern state but Delaware had barred free blacks from testifying against white people in court, and in 1811, Georgia denied them the right to jury trials. In both the North and South, black voting rights eroded too. As of 1800, with 16 states in the Union, all but Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia enfranchised free black men on the same basis as white men. By the 1850s, black men could participate in politics in just five of 31 states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. The Constitution's ratification ushered in 70 years of national growth and prosperity. Land purchases and seizures extended the United States across the continent. The population grew from about 4 million in 1790 to over 31 million in 1860. Each decade brought in a larger influx of immigrants, mostly from Northwestern Europe and the British Isles. Close to 600,000 people arrived in the 1830s, 1.7 million in the 1840s, 2.6 million in the 1850s. By 1860, the United States was the world's fourth biggest industrial power behind England, Germany, and France, and second to no one in commercial agriculture. Injustice and inequality abounded as well. The 1860 census counted nearly 4 million slaves, free workers, and their dependents, about 12 million people in all, lived on wages that averaged under a dollar a day. Restrictions on free African Americans were harsher than ever. Women of all colors still lacked political rights. As oppression mounted, so did resistance. Working people asserted themselves through labor unions, political action, cooperatives, strikes, and countless challenges to slavery. The planters regime spared no effort to preserve and defend slavery. Only a third of the South's white households owned slaves in 1830, and the proportion fell to a fourth by 1860. For that very reason, the planter elite, the richest 1% who owned one quarter of all slaves, ruled the region with a heavy hand. While workers ran afoul of the law when they tried to organize, the courts routinely crushed their unions and strikes. Free blacks, who by 1860 numbered 250,000 in slave-holding states, were now subject to curfews, public whippings for giving the slightest offense to whites, automatic imprisonment for possessing abolitionist literature, and statutory exclusion from learned professions and the majority of skilled trades. Thousands of states and local laws targeted slaves. They were forbidden to raise a hand against any white person, to assemble without white supervision, to buy or sell anything without their master's permission, to leave a plantation at any time, to walk city streets after dark without written passes. The list went on and on. Most states made it a crime to teach slaves to read or write. By 1860, several states in the Deep South had prohibited manumission. The slave trade besieged family life. 
breaking up a quarter to a third of all marriages and snatching countless children from their parents. One of the first things adolescent girls learned about sex was that white men could rape black women with impunity. Not a single slave-holding state defined assaults as crimes. As late as the 1850s, roughly half were household servants, craftsmen, or field hands on farms too small to qualify as plantations, units with at least 20 slaves. Not all plantation field hands did gang labor. The rice plantations of South Carolina, Georgia, and Louisiana used the task system under which a slave got a daily assignment, worked with minimal supervision, and could stop once the job was done. Task labor was also the norm on the cotton plantations on the sea islands along the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. While cotton production dominated the South, manufacturing transformed the North. At the close of the American Revolution, about three-quarters of free people in New England and the mid-Atlantic states had lived and worked on family farms. By 1860, farm families made up just 40% of the population in these states, where nearly a million people now did industrial work. As manufacturing boomed, so did wage labor. Like slavery in the South, the wage system became the core institution of the Northern economy, steadily supplanting other means of making a living. Wage work also absorbed numerous immigrants, especially people of Irish, German, and British descent. But by far the largest cohort were native-born men and women from farming districts plagued by land shortages, debt, and competition from Midwestern agriculture. Job opportunities depended on workers' color, sex, and national origin, as well as their levels of skill. Factory jobs were reserved for whites, and the best-paying positions for men. Craft shop owned by whites typically employed white men only except in a few trades, printing, shoemaking, and tailoring, where white women might work alongside male kin. Germans and British immigrants who usually arrived with craft skills formed ethnic networks that gave them a leg up in the U.S. labor market. Newcomers from Ireland, most of whom lacked industrial experience, concentrated in unskilled jobs and anti-Irish bigotry further limited their options. A typical want ad read, Women wanted English, Scotch, Welsh, German, or any country or color except Irish. Wage workers across the board shared some general problems, poverty and insecurity despite long hours of labor, driving by bosses who continually tried to get more for less, inequality under political and legal systems designed by and for the elite. In every sector of the workforce, activists addressed these issues through collective action, not only unionism, but many other projects too. Mutualism had boundaries, however. Specific conditions of like and labor differed sharply for men and women, skilled and unskilled, citizens and aliens, white and black, 
and labor activism reflected these distinctions. In December 1827, Philadelphia's craft union formed a Mechanics Union of Trade Association, first U.S. labor organization that encompassed workers for various trades. The following summer, its member unions founded another first, a local working men's party that ran its own candidates for municipal and state offices, calling on craftsmen to use the ballot box to take the management of their own interest as a class into their own immediate keeping. They called for improvements in public education and to compulsory militia musters, for repeal of conspiracy laws applied to unions, and for other reforms beneficial to the laboring class. The Democratic Party soon embraced enough of these causes to co-op independent labor politics, but craftsmen continued to organize across occupational lines. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.